0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's podcast, we've got a discussion about slave rebellion and resistance with Professor James Wolven. James is a historian who spent many years researching the transatlantic slave trade, and his latest book is Freedom, the Overthrow of the Slave Empires. I met him in York and began by asking him about the different forms that slave resistance took.
0: The slaves are constantly resisting their bondage from the very moment they're enslaved right through to the last days of slavery in Brazil in the 1880s. Slaves resist their bondage. They run away, they fight back, they drag their feet, they're insolent. The problem is, of course, knowing what is Everyday normal life and what is resistance? You know that it's easy to exaggerate it. However, in telling the story of slave freedom, most historians have relegated slave resistance and slave defiance to other margins. And what's needed is to bring it back much more centrally.
2: The traditional narrative of abolition, especially in Britain, I think, is one of the white abolitionists and William Wilberforce fighting in Britain, and we don't really hear so much about the actions of enslaved people themselves. Why do you think that has been?
0: You can see why uh, the um, emphasis and attention has been on Wilberforce and his friends, because, uh, well, for a start, both the ending of the slave trade in 1807 and then slavery in the 1830s, they were acts of parliament. So how did these acts of parliament come about? So that's a British political parliamentary story. But what hasn't been accepted as a a major ingredient is the way the slaves influence opinion. Slaves persuade the British and British parliamentarians, persuade Wilberforce and others of the need for black freedom because of what they do in the slave islands. It's the slaves organising and resisting and rebelling uh, on behalf of themselves that persuade abolitionists that this is an outrageous um, institution that must be brought to an end.
2: Very few enslaved people, of course, were able to uh, record their own stories. As a historian, how do you go about piecing together their motivations and their experiences, especially when it comes to things like rebellion and revolt?
0: The slave voice in all this, the slave voice uh, is elusive and is often hidden, but it is there. Um, there was a time when I first started, this was about 50 years ago when I first worked on slavery. When I first started on it, we was thought there were no slave voices, but now we know they're there in abundance, but they take different forms. It's the the general problem really of historians seeking out the the voices of um, the unrecorded, the voices of the people who are marginalised and distant. But We can find out what they think, what they say in their actions, for instance, when they run away, what people say about them, how they're described. Um, And then, of course, when Christianity comes along, the way they organise themselves as Christians and the way they demand uh, freedom, demand something for themselves and their families, of their betters, of their owners, and their owners write about them. So you can actually tease out from what other people say about them a slave voice. And that becomes very loud and very pronounced by the late 18th century.
2: You mentioned when we started some of the more subtle forms of resistance than outright rebellion. Can you tell us about some of the ways that um, these forms of rebellion infiltrated everyday life in slave plantations?
0: If you're a slave working on a sugar plantation or a cotton plantation, um, you are subject to an extraordinary uh, intrusive regime of work and and a violent regime of work. You know, the, the whip is always to hand. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate that. But slaves learn how to moderate their, their work. They know how to pace themselves. The slaves know how to give the master and the owner what he's looking for, just enough product, just enough energy, just enough hard work. But on the other hand, you can drag your feet, you can go slow, you can appear to be stupid. And of course, the other problem is that if you're African, you might not understand what's being asked of you. You know, people forget this, that you've got millions of Africans being hectored in Portuguese, French, Spanish and English and patois of those languages. How can they understand what they're expected to do? So the important thing is to learn learn the patois quickly, learn what's expected of you. Uh, And once you've done that, then you can pace yourself. Within limits, you've got to be careful because, uh, you know, there's always the, the white man and his whip hanging in the background.
2: You mentioned there Portuguese and Spanish, and the story you tell here isn't just about Britain and its colonies. You also look um, at French, Spanish colonies and Brazil as well.
0: One of the problems that the British have had, and this is particularly true actually in North America, that that slavery tends to be defined in either British or North American terms. uh, Teaching slavery in North America is... A bit of a problem because it's defined in the, the popular mind and in even in students' mind by uh, the, the 13 colonies and then the United States. But in fact, there are many, many more Africans imported into the Caribbean and especially into Brazil than there are into North America. The number of Africans imported into North America is only a tiny proportion of the total number that's shipped across the Atlantic. So you're looking at a world that is actually shaped by all the European colonial powers, the the Portuguese, the Dutch, the Spaniards, the French, the English, then the British. And if you think of this as a kind of European maritime um, phenomenon, you'll see that everyone's involved. Anyone who thought they could actually uh, set up a ship or create a plantation in the colonies to make money from it would involve themselves in slavery. And what that means is that very few Europeans regard this as something that's got ethical problems to it. For most of the history of the slave trade and slavery, Europeans simply look upon this as an economic phenomenon, and they're all keen to get involved, they're keen to make money. The story of slavery isn't just a story of the English language colonies, it's a story of the Europeans across the Americas.
2: And did those different European colonies see different patterns of revolt and rebellion?
0: there are differences in the way um, slaves react in different colonial settings. I mean, uh, and much of that depends on geography and much of it depends on the nature of the work. I think that's the key thing to, to all this, is to understanding the kind of work that slaves do uh, in the context of the colonial governors. You know, that some regimes are much harsher than others. It used to be thought, when I was a, a student, first of all, it used to be thought that the Brazilians had a very benign kind of slavery. That is completely rejected now, and it's accepted that it's a... It's as tough and as violent and as brutal as any other. Uh, There are differences, but what's most striking, actually, are the similarities that hold slave resistance together. That is feigning hard work, taking your revenge against property and uh, people running away. Slaves run away everywhere. And ultimately, of course, the violence of revolution and upheaval itself.
2: I just want to pick up on your point about running away and escaping. How common was escaping um, from slave plantations and what were the risks involved? Uh,
0: Slaves running away is absolutely common throughout the, uh, the slave colonies and the slave states. Slaves run away. They run away, of course, for a variety of reasons. They run away very often to someone. You know, when you have slaves who are separated from family... You'll get a young man running away to a girlfriend, uh, a man running away to a wife or a wife to husband, uh, children running away to parents and the other way around. We, I used to think that it was slaves running away from something, but now it's, it's much more complicated than that. And there are thousands and thousands of adverts in colonial newspapers um, looking for slaves who are on, on the run. And those adverts very often are the most extraordinary, revealing insight into the slaves themselves. You know, when you have an advert for a slave in Jamaica in the 1790s saying he speaks the English, French, Dutch, Portuguese languages, he's very artful. Well, this tells you something about the man.
2: One of the most remarkable instances of running away is the stories related to the Underground Railroad in North mm-hmm. America. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yes, the, the, the famous uh, Underground Railroad of North America is a system that is... Evolves um, in, in the 18th, but particularly in the 19th century, to ferry fugitives north across the slave line into the free states of the north. And it becomes a very complex and very sophisticated system, uh, which is um, pursued, of course, by the slave owners, uh, is tackled by law. It's, uh, laws are passed to try and prevent the movement of uh, runaway slaves. But it develops into this extraordinary. Uh, movement of slaves on foot by river, and later by railroad itself, that it becomes a way in which huge numbers of people move into the cities of the north and into the border states where they can actually find other black communities that are free. Um, And it's a kind of corrosive of influence in the world of U.S. slavery, but that's just the U.S. There are similar networks in Brazil as well. There are similar networks wherever you find major slave systems. It's just that it's it's much more sophisticated and formalized in North America than it is elsewhere.
2: The networks in Brazil you just mentioned, where would they be um, helping slaves escape to?
0: Well, the networks that you find, the Brazilian slaves are, uh, moving along, are networks into the expanding cities. There are black communities in all the great cities, uh, not as big as they are now, of course, but cities that have their own free black communities and become a kind of magnet for slaves on plantations who know that there are people out there that would welcome them, help them. Uh, but it's not just in, in uh, escape to urban areas. Slaves run away into the wilderness, to the bush. That's Not as easy as it sounds, of course, because, you know, surviving in the wilderness of Brazil or the the wild swamps of Virginia uh, or the mountains of Jamaica, uh, these are very, very difficult um, prospects facing runaway slaves. But the fact that large numbers of people turn to that escape route gives you some sense of their desperation to leave slavery behind them.
2: That sounds very similar to something else you discuss in the book about maroon communities. Mm. Um, How formalized or established did these maroon communities, how established did they become?
0: There are a number of well-organized, formal maroon communities uh, scattered across the Americas, not so much in North America, but certainly in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, Jamaica has two big uh, maroon communities. But that are really almost unapproachable by uh, the colonial powers. It's also true in Brazil. The commun- because in Brazil, of course, you've got this extraordinary landmass where people can escape to. And if you want, if you settle and survive, then it becomes a kind of magnet to attract other people, other slaves. Hear about these communities as a way of um, they, they know they can escape there, and they, they hope to be able to find friends and sympathisers there. That's particularly true if you've got ethnic ties. Africans of similar ethnic background. Um, Wherever we look, there are Maroon communities. The one exception is North America, where they are not so noticeable. They are much more small scale because American slavery is different. Um, Maroon communities thrive on uh, a large scale, actually, in Brazil and are very noticeable in uh, the Maroon communities on the north coast of Jamaica.
2: You mentioned quite early on in our conversation the connection between religion and revolt, either perceived or um, in real terms. What can you tell us about that?
0: The relationship between religion and slavery is a, is a complicated one. And when I was younger, I used to think that religion acted as a kind of force for pacification, you know, that slaves were encouraged to be to adopt the white man's religion because this would keep them in their place. But I think that's really quite wrong now. And that what to my mind is becoming clear, is that the rise of Christianity, of certain kinds of Christianity, certain Mm. kinds of dissent and non-conformity, give slaves the organization and the language to actually resist slavery. The language of the Bible, the Old Testament, crossing the Jordan, uh, freedom, the promised land, heaven, salvation, all of these images, all of those images, Mm. speak not just to the slaves' uh, theological outlook, but to the world here and now. Religion, Christianity gives slaves an alternative to the world of the plantation. And when you have black preachers emerging, you then have leaders emerging. Black preachers who are very powerful, charismatic men and women, but men mainly. uh, People that spring from the slave communities and who are listened to and followed by slaves. Congregations, large groups of people meeting away from a plantation. What you're looking at is an alternative to the world in plantations at that
2: And what did slave owners think about this missionary zeal?
0: It varies. In the British Caribbean, they're not keen on it. The, the British Caribbean planters resist the coming of Christianity in a way that, that uh, you, is not true in Brazil initially, and is not true, actually, in large parts of the American South. But the idea there is that... Um, if planters and slave owners can encourage slaves to listen to their master and render unto Caesar what is Caesar, then this will actually encourage them to be pacific, to be obedient, etc. The difficulty is, once you make people literate, and once you give people the Bible, once you give them the message, and once you give them the preachers, there's no way of knowing which way that will go. And whilst it may seem, on the one hand, a good idea to help keep them in their place, it can actually turn against you
2: I think it's quite easy to assume that um, slave owners were complacent um, but you stressed throughout that they they really lived in fear and those managing the plantations did of revolt what impact do you think that had on the way that plantations were run
0: it's a difficult thing to uh, spell out uh, but my own feeling of this now having you know worked on this for many years is that the question of fear never escapes the slave owners' lives. And that's particularly true of the planters. The planters who live on big plantations in in the wilds, in the bush, there's always the fear that the slaves will turn against you. And particularly after the great Haitian slave revolt of 1791, Haiti becomes the kind of nightmare that all slave owners remember. It never goes away. Toussaint Louverture becomes the great hero for slaves everywhere, but he is the demonic figure for slave owners. They know uh, what happened in Haiti, uh, which was kind of a cataclysmic uprising that destroyed slavery and destroyed the whole economy. And slave owners had in the back of the mind what they'd always had in the back of the mind. You give African slaves an inch and they'll take an African mile and they will seek their revenge on you.
2: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
0: been a pattern amongst historians, and I I'm one of them, really. To think that slaves were the creatures of of their owners, that somehow or other, um, their lives were shaped individually and collectively by the people who owned them. There's much, much more to it than that. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it
1: for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: I did want to ask you more about the Haiti Revolution because you speak about it a lot in your book. What triggered the revolt and why did it escalate so dramatically?
0: Saint-Domingue, the the, the French colony that becomes Haiti, uh, was in some ways the most brutal of the slave colonies. There were more Africans poured in in a very short space of time than we find anywhere else. Uh, it's a brutal regime, both uh, in colonial terms and in, on the plantations. Uh, and it is the ignition, of course, is uh, what happens in France in 1789. You cannot start uh, attaching uh, yourself to ideals of liberty, equality and fraternity. All men are equal without having some kind of influence. There's a kind of political disruption caused amongst the free colours, as they were called, amongst the colonial whites. And all the kind of convulsion of French politics after 1789 ignites um, the aspirations and the feelings of the slaves themselves. The slaves see what's happening amongst those around them and the whole thing explodes. The violence is on an extraordinary scale versus French metropolitan power of um, the free coloureds against the colonial whites, of the slaves against everybody, and the slaves win. The slaves destroy everybody. They destroy an invading army put there by, um, first of all, the the, the British, then the Spanish, and then again by Napoleon. None of them can cope. And what emerges is the independent nation of Haiti in 1804. Um, Uh, the first independent black republic outside of Africa, Uh, with all its problems, with all its devastation and its poverty that followed, that what that example of that revolution did was to, A, send thousands of people scurrying for freedom to the United States and to Jamaica, but it scattered the idea of what happens if you give the slaves an inch.
2: That's really interesting to me because a lot of people would assume that slave revolts are very much tied into, for example, what's happening in one particular place on one particular plantation um, or specific incidents. But you're suggesting here that there was a, a much broader awareness of global events.
0: There, There is, actually. I've recently been looking through some letters between two Scottish brothers, one in Jamaica, one in uh, Ayrshire, and they write back and forth. And the one in Jamaica is very alert to what's happening in the wider world. Um you know, People who own slaves throughout the Americas are very conscious of what's happening in other parts of the Americas They pick it up in newspapers. They are course, their system is kept uh, alive by the imports of Africans By the imports of goods from all corners of the world that news passes around the shipping systems of the Americas You know that if you're living in a remote spot in Jamaica It only takes a month or so to get information from London or from West Africa You know what's happening and a ship that's called in at Jamaica and has been in Africa a month before Uh, moves on to, let's say, New York or Philadelphia with news from all those places again. This is a kind of a system that not merely moves goods and commodities around the Atlantic, but ideas. And those ideas after 1776 in America, after 1789 in, um, in France, and after 1791 in Haiti, is awash with the ideas of revolution. The interesting thing about all this is that European historians of the age of revolution have paid very little attention to this. The first great book on this by a man called Palmer, R.R. Palmer, The Age of Democratic Revolution, it um, doesn't mention it at all. Uh, even Eric Hobsbawm, you know, the great Eric Hobsbawm, has only it's only got a walk-on part in his uh, analysis of the age of revolution.
2: So in this world where news spread Um, like wildfire, what were some of the reactions to the Haiti Revolution, both um, among slave owners but also enslaved people?
0: Two things, I think. One is that um, the slaves themselves learn about it. The slaves know what's going on. We've got a lot of evidence about this. The slaves pick it up. Um, They know what's happened in Haiti, not least because large numbers of slaves... Uh, traveled from uh, Haiti to North America and Jamaica with their owners when they fled. So, you know, you've got slaves moving around physically. They know what's going on. It gives slaves encouragement. Um, The other side of this, of course, it hardens the hearts of the slave owners. They know what's happened, and they feel that Haiti was the result of giving in to the slaves. You must not resist, you must not give in to the forces of abolition. So the, it hardens the, the the divide between slaves and, sla- and slaveholders and their supporters on both sides. Slaveholders don't like abolitionists because they say what you're looking for is a, re- a repetition, a reprise of what happened in Haiti. If you start meddling with the slave trade, you'll have another Haiti. And that argument is bounced back and forth against the abolitionists in Britain in the late 18th century and right into the United States in the um, into the uh, 19th century.
2: And what would an abolitionist's response to that have been?
0: Well, it's, it, they're both going around in circles. They say, well, this, this problem will continue as long as you treat the slaves badly. and Unless you treat the slaves better... Uh, the slaves will rebel, the slaves will resist, this kind of human. Uh, and you've got two sides that dig themselves in. This is simplifying it extraordinarily, but the two sides dig themselves in, people in favour of the slave system, saying um, if you tamper with slavery, the whole thing will explode. And the other side, the, what we think of as the abolitionist in general terms, saying that unless you begin to change, unless you contemplate ending the system, all you're doing is building a rod for your own back.
2: As well as Haiti what were some of the other most notable slave uprisings in
0: the british case there were um, major revolts in barbados in uh, demerara and then in jamaica between the end of the napoleonic wars and the passing of the great reform act and in each of those there were, uh, jamaican, the jamaican the jamaica baptist war of 1831-32 was a very close run thing was, uh, the british colonial powers and the planters uh, barely held on to the system uh, it, there was tremendous violence and destruction, and it looked as if the slaves might go the way of Haiti. And much of that influence came from um, the spread of Christianity amongst the slaves, they're particularly non-conformity, Baptist, uh, Methodists, their preachers, and the visiting preachers from Britain who, despite trying to tread a very delicate line between doing what the slave owners wanted and uh, preaching to the slaves, in fact, were waving a kind of a torch in a very, very combustible situation.
2: Another uprising, the one led by Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831, yes. why did that one cause such a stir?
0: Well, it looked again, uh, it looked again as if um, the United States was going to be troubled by um, what had happened in the Caribbean. Um, the owners of slaves in Virginia and elsewhere in the United States look at Nat Turner's revolt, which is actually... In American terms, it's relatively large. In the hemispheric terms, it's pretty small scale. It doesn't compare to, to comes nowhere close to Haiti, it doesn't compare to the revolts in Jamaica and, and, and the revolts in Brazil in the 19th century. Um, but to the Americans, to American slaveholders, it looks as if yet another reprise of what had happened in the Caribbean that is, men of vision, uh, messianic figures, charismatic figures. Attraction to themselves a body of people that want to overthrow the local slaveholders and perhaps want to overthrow the local state And who can only be dealt with by the most extraordinary violence, so you have slave revolt even if it's small scale breeds Violence and repression on an extraordinary scale. I mean, this is the kind of pattern everywhere You have a revolt a rebellion some form of physical resistance deaths violence but put down by uh, repressive systems that uh, are out of all proportion to the initial slave violence.
2: These hideous retributions often involved the executions of most people involved, if not um, other mm. people as well. Mm. Um, what motivated, with thre- threatened with this horrible mm. um, retribution, what motivated people to resist when they knew pretty much that it would be...
0: Um, dealt with in that way. Well, again, this is the difficult question, isn't it? Having yourself put in a cage till you died, or being beheaded and being gibbeted. Of uh, course, what one needs to remember in all this is that the—if we take the British case—the the English Bloody Code still exists. You know that there are heads still hanging on the city walls of York in the 1790s. Um, public executions in in England only until the 1860s. The the law is a fearsome system and if you transgress in a violent fashion, you can expect the most extraordinary punishments to be visited upon you. So it's not just the slave colonies, except in the slave colonies, the levels of violence are, are, are extreme, the numbers involved are extreme. But it does raise the question of why would a slave embark on this? I think the truth is it was slaves all knew what would happen if they rebelled and failed. And I think that is one of the reasons why so many slaves didn't go down that route. And they had that experience on the slave ships. It starts on the slave ships, that the slave ships are the kind of crucible of white violence over Africans. And that story is passed on as as folk culture amongst the slaves. If you step out of line and try violence, this is what you can expect. You can expect to be punished, you can expect to be executed and mutilated. Um, So there are very powerful reasons for not involving yourself in any kind of physical uprising. The fact that many do gives you some indication of desperation.
2: And how were slave revolts seen um, by sympathetic people, in Europe, say abolitionists?
0: The rise of abolition actually uh, helps um, slave resistance in all kinds of ways because slaves come to learn that they have friends elsewhere. Slaves in the South learn that they've got friends in the North, hence the, uh, the, the, the Underground Railroad. Um, Jamaican slaves know that they've got friends in Britain because the, the, the missionary preachers tell them so. And the people in Britain are outraged that co-religionists are being treated like this. Black. Methodists, black Baptists that are being harshly treated in Jamaica. Uh, in Brazil, um, slaves know that in the towns there are educated people who, on their side. And the people who turn against slavery realise that um, unless they can win over the slave-owning class... Violence will be visited upon one generation after another and the, the arguments that abolitionists put forward, again clean across the Americas, is that violence is the kind of natural offspring of the slave system uh, and until you address the question of slavery itself, there will always be slight, uh, violent resistance to it.
2: How do you think that this new emphasis on the actions of enslaved people themselves changes how we should look at the story of abolition?
0: I think what we're looking at is looking at something that is affecting the way we think of slavery in general, and that is what we're looking at is a slave agency. Uh, that's putting it in a slightly fancy way, but I think we're looking at the way, what do slaves do uh, to shape the world around them? What do slaves do about their own condition? It's been very tempting, there's been a pattern amongst historians, and I, you know, I'm one of them really, to think that slaves were... Uh, the the creatures of of their owners, that they somehow or other, um, their lives were shaped individually and collectively by the people who owned them. There's much, much more to it than that. Whether it's on the slave ships, whether it's uh, on the plantations, when it's in the towns and cities of North America and Brazil, slaves have a positive role in making the world around them. That, uh, they create a life for themselves that is, is often not noticed. And that the lives that they create for themselves is one of um, defiance against the system.
2: That was James Wolvin. His book, Freedom. The Overthrow of the Slave Empires is available now, published by Robinson. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Monday, when Tom Penn will be discussing the Yorkist dynasty.